This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. One in three adults does not get enough sleep. As a nation, we are insufficient in our sleep. We need quality sleep to stay healthy, engaged, and resilient. What are the contributors of sleep deprivation? Today, I'm talking with Dr. Guy Leshner, a leading neurologist on the science of sleep. We will be discussing how to address the most common sleep issues. If you're feeling sleep deprived, this is the episode for you. Thank you for joining me today on Spark, Dr. Leshner. Why is getting enough quality sleep so important to our well-being? One has to ask the question as to why uh, we spend a third of our lives asleep. We wouldn't do it unless it was absolutely crucial to uh, some aspects of our life. And as we learn more and more about sleep, we begin to understand that actually sleep is really fundamental to pretty much every single aspect of our waking lives, be it psychological, be it neurological, or, or, or be it physical. It's about restoration, it's about memory, it's about learning, it's about mood. It's even about our cardiovascular or metabolic health, so how we process uh, sugar, for example. We begin to understand that actually sleep is really intrinsic to every aspect of our waking lives. How much sleep do we really need? It seems to vary by person. Well, I think that's absolutely right. So people will often answer that question with, well, the average amount of sleep that you need is between seven and eight and a half hours. And I think that that's probably correct on a population basis. So when one looks at very large swathes of individuals and one tries to correlate the amount of time people report that they sleep, uh, against other parameters such as, for example, mortality, which is perhaps the easiest uh, thing to relate it to, we, we see that somewhere between seven and eight and a half hours is, is probably the sweet spot. But we also know that the amount of time that we need to sleep is genetically predetermined. So there are individuals who require less sleep than seven hours, and there are individuals who need more than eight and a half hours. And indeed, I look after a few families of people who all need, for example, five hours. So to ask how much sleep do we actually need is a bit like saying, well, what's the average height of an eight-year-old? If you look at a class photo of eight-year-olds, they will all be slightly different heights, but they will all be normal. And I think the same applies very much to sleep. There's a perception among teenagers that they need less sleep. Would you agree with that? Absolutely not. So I think that the reason why teenagers often think they need less sleep is because they tend to go to sleep much later than other people in their family. And we know that that shift in the circadian clock, that intrinsic biological rhythm that we all have that tends to run on a roughly 24-hour basis, shifts later in teenagers. But that also means that they need to get up later. And of course, that's not always the case because they have to get up to go to school or to go to college or to get up to go to sports. So in essence, they are very sleep deprived. And we know that sleep is fundamental to neurological development. So there are certain periods of life where it's really important not to skimp on sleep. And certainly teenagehood is one of those times of life. So it sounds like we start off with needing more sleep as a child, and then over time, it dials back, right? That, that's absolutely right. So we know that, for example, as newborns, we seem to spend about two-thirds of our life asleep, and then that ra- rapidly drops down as we enter infancy and childhood. It tends to stabilize 
in early middle age, so kind of late 20s, early 30s, and then remain somewhat stable for, for the rest of life. Now, the, one of the commonly held views is that when we become older in age, so you know, past retirement age, we actually need less sleep. It's not entirely clear whether that's true or not. It may simply be that as we get older, we're less good at getting the sleep that we need and that individuals in their 70s and 80s probably need the same amount of sleep as we do when we're in our 40s and 50s. It's just that we're less good at getting that sleep. It seems like they're taking more naps to make up for it from what I can see. But the question then is, let's say you're a preteen or you're in elementary school. It sounds like it's like nine to 10 at during that stage. Then they decide that they need less and then it drops off. And that's why I find it interesting that the teenagers think, well, I can definitely get away with less sleep. But I would think that that's true of college students as well, where they're thinking they need less sleep. But you, what you're saying is on average, they should be getting eight hours. Yeah, they should be getting eight to nine hours, roughly. The problem when you're a teenager and when you're a college student is you've got so many competing interests for your time. Um, and if it's a choice between sleeping and going out and socializing, uh, partying, studying, there are easier options or more inviting options than going to bed. Whereas actually, from a general health point of view, be, be that physical and psychological health, having that time to sleep. When you say that it stabilizes in our 20s, does that mean that the actual number then is determined at that time? Yeah, I, I, I think that one, what you have to remember is that sleep is a, is a confluence of both biological factors, but also a range of other factors, some of which are psychological, some of which are environmental, and some of which are behavioral. So how much sleep you actually need is a, is a consequence of your age. It's a consequence of your genetics, but it's also a consequence of the quality of sleep that you're getting. So if you are, for example, one of those individuals who has a sleep disorder, be that insomnia or be that obstructive sleep sleep apnea or, or, or a range of other sleep disorders, then that is going to mean that intrinsically you require more, more sleep. So there are a number of factors that feed into this, and biological age is not the, the only one. All right, that's a really good point. Is sleep tied to training your body to follow a certain routine on a regular basis? Because what I hear is you shouldn't be going to bed at different times, but I think a lot of people do, right? No one goes exactly at 10 or exactly at 9 or exactly 11. Yeah, sleep is a, is a learned habit. It's something that we, we acquire as we go through infancy, and as such, it can be unlearned. Now, if you're one of those lucky individuals who can sleep whenever you want, wherever you want, then actually it probably doesn't make too much of a difference in what time you're going to bed and what time you're waking up because you're never going to have any difficulties getting sufficient sleep for you. The issue is more about those individuals uh, who constitute a very large section of the population who have a degree of insomnia or a tendency towards poor quality sleep. And in those individuals, actually retaining a fairly rigid sleep pattern uh, and fairly rigid behaviours surrounding sleep. And the kinds of behaviours that we often talk about are things like avoidance of large quantities of alcohol before bed, avoidance of caffeine, exposure to bright lights, those kinds of things. That, then those are the individuals who really benefit from trying to maintain as, as rigid a sleep pattern as possible. My understanding is if you slept four hours the night before, you shouldn't try to go to bed early. 
you should still stick with your regular bedtime. Well, there's a really important point surrounding that, which is it depends why you only slept for four hours. If you only slept for four hours because you're sleep restricted, because you're at a party or you're working late into the night, then quite frankly, it probably doesn't make too much of a difference to what time you go to bed the night before. If you only slept four hours because you have a tendency towards insomnia, i.e. you were lying in bed but you couldn't sleep, then actually going to bed earlier the, the following night is actually potentially a negative thing to do for your sleep because what it then does is it means that you're going to bed at a time where your circadian clock is not telling you that you need to go to sleep. Um, it is then strengthening the association in your own mind between the fact that you're in bed and you're lying awake rather than in bed and going off to sleep. And that in itself can drive the underlying insomnia. So one has to ask uh, oneself, why is it that I only slept for four hours the previous night? A lot of people work, read, or do other activities in bed. Does that impair their ability to fall asleep? depends on the activity that you're doing in bed. We generally recommend that individuals do not use gadgets in bed, so electronic gadgets that produce light. And there are, there's one principal reason as to why that should be the case, the, 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 and that reason is that these devices generate a lot of blue light, and we know that blue light in particular is very good at suppressing the natural secretion of a hormone uh, that's produced by your brain called melatonin, which is a, a signal to promote sleep. And so if you're exposing yourself to bright light before you go to bed, particularly in bed, then that may actually make it more difficult for you to get off to sleep. But what we're increasingly understanding is that this is now not just a factor of melatonin suppression, but also that doing these kinds of things, getting on Twitter, uh, getting on uh, the newspapers, particularly at the moment in our slightly troubled times, it is not very good for our uh, mental frame of mind. It's not particularly a calming activity and is likely to excite or, or irritate us, which in itself is not particularly good for sleep. If you're reading a, a book, an old-fashioned book, then that's quite good for quietening the mind and relaxing you before bed. So it very much depends on what it is you're doing in bed. Backing up on the number of hours per night, and the variation that people seem to go through with their sleep. I notice a lot of people will deprive themselves during the week and then catch up during the weekend. Is that a bad strategy or that works? It seems like we have this reserve we need to catch up on. Are people then catch up on it during the weekend? Yeah. So that in, in, in uh, research uh, terms, in clinical terms, is, is described as a sleep debt. So you accrue a sleep debt during the week and then you try and pay that sleep debt back at the weekends. And, and I guess that the issue very much depends on how sleep deprived you are during the week. If you are sufficiently sleep deprived during the week, then really no amount of catch up at the weekend is going to repay your sleep debt. And you may, may be going back to work on a, on a Monday morning, actually not having completely compensated for the sleep deprivation that you've accrued over the preceding working week. So, so to base your lifestyle upon a situation whereby you're getting five hours a night sleep during the week and then trying to catch up at, at the weekend is perhaps not the ideal situation. Is it about getting deep and rested sleep, though, more than a lot of sleep? Well, we know that 
different stages of sleep seem to have different functions. And we generally consider that what's termed slow wave sleep or stage three non-REM sleep, often referred to as deep sleep, is the stage of sleep that's most important for restoration of function and for making you feel less tired than you were before you went to bed. But we also know that other stages of sleep, in particular REM sleep, seem to have important functions in terms of memory and regulation of mood. So on the one hand, it's probably the deep sleep that is most biologically important. It's the stage of sleep that the brain compensates for most when you are sleep deprived. But it's probably both deep sleep and REM sleep that have fundamental roles in maintaining our brain in its best possible condition. And is there a good way to make sure you get both? Well, I think the good, the best way to, to make sure you get both is to try and keep a regular sleep pattern. Because if you are sleep deprived on a certain night, then first of all, you're losing out on sleep generally uh, on the night that you're sleep deprived. And then when your brain catches up the following day, it tends to sacrifice REM sleep for non-REM sleep. So it promotes very deep non-REM sleep in that catch-up night. So trying to keep things regular, going back to what we were discussing a moment ago, is probably the single best thing that you can do to try and maintain that regular pattern of, of, of sleep and the stages of sleep through which you pass. What are the leading sleep disturbances that you typically see? Well, I think the commonest by far is insomnia, because insomnia affects about 30% of adults in any one year and uh, uh, affects about one in 10 individuals on a chronic basis. But there are many other sleep disorders that are actually far more common than people are aware of. Conditions like obstructive sleep apnea, which is when you obstruct your airway uh, whilst you're sleeping and that causes disruptions of sleep, sometimes 10, 15, even 100 times an hour, which really destroys the refreshing nature of sleep and have some really negative consequences in terms of your blood pressure, in terms of your glucose tolerance, so it can result in pre-diabetic state or even diabetes. It can increase your risk of stroke and heart disease. And that affects probably, depending on how you define it, about 1 in 10% of adult males, by some measures actually much more than that, uh, and about half the number of adult females. The other condition that we very commonly see is a condition called restless leg syndrome, which is a neurological disorder. Now, this results in people feeling a a sensation of uh, of an urge to move their legs, typically at night, um, which can sometimes be associated with some very unpleasant sensations as well, and that causes significant sleep disruption, and that affects about 1 in 20 individuals. Interesting. It seems like everyone shakes, though, a bit in their sleep. It's normal to to twitch a little bit in your sleep. I I guess it depends on the nature of the the, uh, shaking or the twitching and how you feel when you wake up the following morning. So if you've had an adequate night's sleep, you know, seven to eight and a half hours, and you wake up feeling thoroughly unrefreshed, then that probably suggests that the kicking or twitching that you're doing at night may be having some negative consequences on your sleep. And that's the time to go and see somebody. As to sleep apnea, snoring and breathing issues seem to be more common now because of all these sleep clinics that have popped up. What is happening and what can we do? Because it seems like most people have difficulty with the continual use of the breathing equipment. I think there are two reasons why sleep apnea has become more common. You're absolutely right. There are many more sleep clinics. And so they're diagnosing a whole load of people out there with sleep apnea who 
ordinarily wouldn't have known about it in the past. But I think the other issue is that we know that sleep apnea is strongly correlated with weight. It is you're much more likely to have obstructive sleep apnea if you're if you're overweight or obese. And the reason for that is that being overweight uh, adds soft tissues to the neck. It makes the airway more likely to collapse down. And so as we as a population have got larger, uh, sleep apnea has got more frequent in the population. You're absolutely right that the treatment that is typically prescribed, uh, which is a, a treatment called CPAP or continuous positive airway pressure, it's a mask essentially that's applied to the face and, and is pressurized in an effort to try and splint the airway open, is actually quite difficult to tolerate. So for many people, they try it um, and it transforms their life. But for an equal number of individuals, they have terrible problems getting used to sleeping with this mask strapped to their face. They have terrible problems with leakage. They find it uncomfortable or simply can't tolerate it for other reasons. And, and so this is a major issue uh, for uh, many practicing sleep physicians in that they have a lot of people with obstructive sleep apnea who don't respond to typical treatments. Now, in those individuals, there are a range of other options. There are some dental devices called mandibular advancement devices, which can help. Occasionally, surgery can be an option for selected individuals. Uh, and, and sometimes individuals have sleep apnea in certain positions that they sleep in. And that, there are some technologies that can be used to try and keep people off their back, for example, if they are known typically to only have obstructive sleep apnea on their back. So CPAP or this mask device is not the only option for the management of people with sleep apnea. If they were to lose their weight... Would that make a difference? We certainly know that weight loss can help uh, reduce the severity of sleep apnea. And in many individuals can sometimes get rid of sleep apnea altogether. One of the difficulties that we have as, as, as doctors is predicting who is going to um, cure themselves of sleep apnea or significantly improve themselves uh, of sleep apnea with weight loss and in whom it's not going to make that much of a difference. So we always advise people to lose weight as, a, as one of the management plans, but it's very difficult to give people a guarantee that if they lose X number of pounds, uh, that they're going to rid themselves of their obstructive sleep apnea. You could lose the weight and still have it. You could, and we certainly see uh, lots of very uh, thin individuals who, for other reasons, have uh, significant sleep apnea. So there's no guarantee, but certainly losing weight is likely to lessen the severity of your sleep apnea and, of course, will have lots of beneficial effects on your health otherwise. Okay, so the most common complaint in households it's snoring. How do you address snoring? I mean, most people complain that they can't sleep with their spouse because of the snoring. It's, you know, it's even a common joke. How do you solve that? I think with, with tongue in cheek, you give the complaining person some earplugs, probably the easiest way of trying to address it. I mean, on a, on, on a serious note, you know, snoring is incredibly common. In fact, pretty much everybody snores to some degree. And so that from a clinical perspective from a doctor's perspective the question is whether or not somebody is snoring or does that snoring demonstrate the fact that they've got obstructive sleep apnea if they've got obstructive sleep apnea and the snoring is within the spectrum of obstructive sleep apnea then they often then they need treatment of their sleep apnea and a, a treatment like uh, CPAP or the mandibular advancement devices dental device that I was talking about will sometimes be a very effective treatment for for snoring uh, sometimes 
once again, surgery is an appropriate option for individuals who are snoring. Although, you know, I would hasten to add that the evidence base for uh, that is not great. And there are many, many people that I see who've had surgery for snoring in whom it's had no benefit whatsoever. There's also implants that I've seen to fix snoring. Do you think they actually work? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how strong the evidence base for that is. There are also other technologies that are being explored, like, for example, electrical stimulation. So electrical stimulation of, of the muscles of the uh, tongue or, or of the throat, handheld devices that result in, in essentially a form of uh, training of the muscles in the airway to try and increase rigidity of the muscles of the airway. There are also exercises that individuals can do so things like for example singing or, or, or famously learning the didgeridoo can significantly help snoring and sleep apnea so there are things that people can try for themselves do not necessarily involve sort of invasive procedures that may be of benefit so it's almost like you're doing exercise for the area of your body to help expand and open it Exactly, uh, to, to increase the rigidity because snoring is essentially the, the vibration of the airway as a result of turbulent flow. So if you increase the rigidity of that airway, essentially by working out that part of your body, then that can improve snoring significantly. I mean, the other thing to, to consider is obviously alcohol is going to make snoring much worse, as is smoking because it causes inflammation of the airway and changes that are... Uh, not particularly conducive to having very easy breathing at night. So there are things that you can do for yourself to try and improve your snoring as well. Is it because singing forces you to take your breath from your centre? Well, it's probably more to do with giving the workout of the muscles that regulate your voice, the muscles of the oropharynx, uh, a workout. And, and so you're causing changes to the musculature of the uh, throat and of the oral cavity that are good for regulating snoring and obstructive sleep apnea rather than the sort of central breathing techniques. People will argue that if you know how to breathe and you breathe from the right place, then you take in the air that you need, but it's not so easy when you're sleeping. Well, precisely. So regulating your breathing during singing is not going to be particularly applicable to when you're uh, unconscious at night uh, in your bed. Um, it's more about the regulation of the muscle tone in the airway itself. People talk about waking up frequently during sleep. What are the key contributors and what can we do about it? Well, it's very normal to wake up in sleep. So when we bring people into the sleep lab and we record their sleep, we will often see very brief awakenings throughout the night. And in fact, we view anybody who has been awake for less than about 30 minutes over the course of the night to be within the range of normal. So just because you're waking up at night, that does not necessarily mean that you're abnormal or you have a medical condition. A bigger issue is, is really if you are spending very prolonged periods uh, awake or if it is having an impact on how you feel when you've woken up. Uh, in the morning. And there are a whole range of uh, reasons as to why people may uh, wake up repeatedly. So, for example, anxiety destabilizes sleep. There are many medications that, stabilize, that destabilize sleep and cause people to wake up repeatedly at night. And then there are a whole range of sleep disorders that cause that. So obstructive sleep apnea, we've already talked about, 
Restless leg syndrome in itself does not tend to cause people to wake up at night, although it's very strongly associated with a condition called periodic limb movement disorder, where people kick repeatedly in their sleep, and that can give rise to recurrent awakenings. And then there are a whole host of other sleep disorders. So, for example, narcolepsy, which is a brain disorder that results in people being excessively sleepy during the day, but it also results in their sleep being very fragmented, very disrupted at night. So so there are really a, a huge number of reasons as to why people may wake up repeatedly. It's okay typically to wake up frequently as long as you are able to get back to sleep and you feel rested in the morning. But some people do end up staying up. They start thinking about whatever it is that comes to mind. Is there a technique of turning that off and going back to sleep? Yeah, there are, there are a number of techniques. So So what you're describing there is a form of insomnia. So most people tend to think of insomnia as being, you know, getting into bed and then having great difficulty getting off to sleep. And that's, that is indeed the commonest type of insomnia, something that we call sleep initiation insomnia. But actually, for many people, they also have sleep maintenance insomnia where exactly that happens. They wake up in the middle of the night, their brain becomes very active, and then they have great difficulties in getting back to sleep. Now, actually, the treatments for sleep initiation insomnia and sleep maintenance insomnia are very similar in that there there is a a very evidence-based technique called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is a behavioral technique that is really largely focused on trying to recondition, retrain the brain to being able to drift back to sleep again very, very quickly. And it utilizes a number of different techniques in order to do that, including, for example, some relaxation techniques. So I I would urge anybody who has insomnia, be that difficulties getting off to sleep or staying asleep, just to Google CBT for insomnia, because this is a a proven technique that tends to help anything between 60 and 80% of individuals without resorting to any medications. And is this something that you go to a doctor for? You can go to your doctor. In the UK, uh, there are several online platforms which allow you to do it for yourself. And I believe that they are also available in the US. So this is something that you can access for yourself even without going to your doctor. So you could teach yourself this therapy through an online app or platform? Exactly. Perfect. The use of CBD or cannabidiol is on the rise for sleep inducement. What is your thought about this and on sleep-inducing teas? The situation in particularly California is very different from the situation in the UK where where CBD is still uh, not licensed in the UK uh, uh, except at doses that are very, very low. We know that clearly there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that CBD and uh, related compounds do help some people get off to sleep. Uh, partly that's uh, due to the soporific effects of the CBD, but also partly it's due to its impact on anxiety. What we don't yet know, and certainly don't have systematic evidence for, is what the consequences are uh, for taking a CBD long term. We certainly know that if people have been taking CBD in the long term and then they stop taking it, then that will have very negative consequences on their sleep. As a general rule, and I guess this applies to sleep-promoting teas as well, if you can address your difficulties getting off to sleep and staying asleep using non-substance-based techniques, things like CBT for insomnia, then that's a much better option because what tends to happen is people do start using 
things like CBD or teas as a, as a crutch, as a psychological crutch to try and get them off to sleep. And when they don't have those available to them, they can't sleep. Uh, so what we try and encourage is to people to use their own natural biological rhythms, biological processes to try and improve sleep quality rather than re- resorting to things like teas or CBD. That's really good to know because a lot of times they promote the product as being natural, right, and non-addictive. Yeah. So you think, yeah. well, it can't be bad for you and it's going to help me sleep better. So what's the harm of having a cup? Or taking a drop of CBD or you know, having a cup of sleep-inducing tea? Well, uh, you know, this is a commonly held view that just because something's natural, it must be good for you. But, of course, morphine is natural. You know, botulinum toxin, which is one of the most poisonous substances known to man, is, is natural. And just because something is natural does not equate to it being safe or good for you. Melatonin seems to be the most promoted sleep aid. Mm-hmm. Most people don't seem to know how to use it correctly because they report feeling groggy or it just, it just feels off for them. Does it make sense to actually use it? And what's your opinion on the way melatonin works? Well, I, I use melatonin quite a lot. I use it in two ways. So it has a sleep-promoting quality to it, but it also has a sleep uh, a sleep clock changing quality to it what i mean by that is that we can actually shift people's circadian rhythms their internal body clocks by giving them melatonin at an appropriate time and so there are a number of issues that specifically relate to these two roles that melatonin has because if you give melatonin at the wrong time uh, and the timing is crucial related to somebody's own internal body clock it can have really quite wildly different consequences The other issue, particularly for all of you in the U.S., is that because melatonin in the U.S. is not pharmaceutically regulated, then the the amount of melatonin that is present in the capsules or the pills that you are buying in supermarkets, in health food stores, can vary quite significantly from what is actually on the label. In the U.K., melatonin is by prescription only and is therefore pharmaceutically regulated. I think the same applies for melatonin as it does for CBD, in that, you know, in ideal circumstances, one would be really keen to encourage people to improve their sleep using non-agent, non-substance-related techniques, because that's a, a way of trying to improve sleep in the long term without resorting to a crutch. But now it makes sense because if it's pharmaceutical, then it's very clear what you're being prescribed and how you're being prescribed. You know, it's a double-edged sword because we use melatonin very widely uh, in in the sleep clinic setting, not just for insomnia. We also use it for things like, you know, extreme sleepwalking or people who act out their dreams. So melatonin has a number of very, very useful functions uh, in, in the sleep clinic setting. But I think it's important to take it in a way that you're informed about and ideally should really be guided by a uh, a sleep clinician. This is really helpful because, as you said, we could just walk in and buy it. And it's unclear that we know what we're using and how we should be using it. That makes it much clearer. Do what or how we drink and eat affect our sleep? I think there are some issues there obviously the biggest issue is caffeine so for the majority of individuals 
um, caffeine has a very uh, negative consequence on, on, on sleep. There are some individuals who carry a genetic variant, which means that actually caffeine doesn't impact their sleep at all. But for most people, that has a, a huge impact. The other ways in which what we eat or drink may give rise to sleep disturbance is in, in, in very obvious ways. So, for example, if you are drinking large amounts of fluid before you go to bed, the likelihood is that your full bladder is going to disturb the quality of your sleep and is going to cause you to get up at night to pass your in. If you're eating a very large meal before you go to bed and you have a bit of reflux or indigestion, then it's quite possible that you're going to get woken up because of that reflux or indigestion. If you have a very large carbohydrate-rich meal uh, before you go to bed, then it is possible that actually you may have something called rebound hypoglycemia, where in response to a very large carbohydrate-rich meal, your body churns out a whole load of insulin, and then your blood sugars res respond by dropping actually quite low, and that can reduce quality of your sleep. But for the most part, actually, there is very limited evidence that what you eat and drink during the day is going to have a huge bearing on uh, the quality of your sleep. I had heard that wine could cause you to wake up in the middle of the night. It's very well described that alcohol is not good for sleep. So uh, alcohol is, whilst it is obviously soporific, it helps people get off to sleep, the quality of sleep is, is generally poorer. There are the direct consequences of alcohol on the sleeping brain, um, but there are also some secondary effects. So Obviously, if you have a full bladder, that's going to have an impact on your sleep. If you have mild sleep apnea, that might tip you over into more severe uh, sleep apnea. And in fact, alcohol is a very common trigger for things like sleepwalking because it is such a good disruptor of sleep. So, you know, generally speaking, if you are having trouble with your sleep or you are an insomniac, you should try as much as possible to cut out alcohol altogether, be that wine, beer, spirits or whatever. That is so interesting because most people are taking it to relax, perhaps fall asleep. Yes, that's a you know that's a very common picture whereby we see people who uh, essentially are using alcohol in order to get them off to sleep. This is a very slippery slope because we you know we do regularly see individuals who ended up having an alcohol problem as a result of the fact that they've been using alcohol as a, as a hypnotic and it does and ultimately it doesn't improve the quality of the sleep that they're getting it gets them off to sleep but the sleep quality that they're getting is really atrocious what about exercise is there an optimal approach that would contribute to better sleep I don't think there's an optimal approach. I think that certainly there is very good evidence that aerobic exercise during the day helps to drive the proportion and the depth of slow wave of deep sleep. And so certainly uh, aerobic exercise on a regular basis is going to be conducive to better sleep. Exercising right before bedtime may not be the right approach because obviously that raises your heart rate it raises your adrenaline levels and can actually be quite mentally stimulating but if you are having difficulty sleeping then certainly regular aerobic exercise may well help if people are unclear what is contributing to the disrupted sleep what is the best way for them to determine the cause well i think the first thing to ask yourself is if i am tired and i am getting into bed Am I falling asleep quickly or am I staying asleep? Because if you're not, then that suggests that you have insomnia. If you are 
tired during the day, but you're getting less than kind of seven and a half hours a night regular sleep, then the first thing to do is to say, well, look, you know, if I give myself more time in bed, for example, at the weekends, am I spending more time asleep? And if you are, if you're spending more than an hour a night in bed at the weekend than you do during the week, that suggests that you probably are relatively chronically sleep deprived. Um, If you are spending a reasonable time in bed, so seven and a half, eight hours a night, uh, and you regularly wake up feeling unrefreshed, particularly if you are sleepy during the day, you're falling asleep in situations that perhaps your friends, your colleagues, your other family members have no difficulty staying awake in, then it's very likely that you have an underlying sleep disorder. And that's definitely something that you need to be talking to your family practitioner about. Can we actually influence what we're doing while we're sleeping? I heard you can actually problem solve. For most people, that's not something that you can do. For for many people, however, uh, they describe the ability to be able to lucid dream. So what lucid dreaming means is that they have a degree of awareness that whilst they are dreaming, they are actually dreaming. Uh, And not only that, but for some individuals, that actually extends to being able to control what they're doing in their their dreams or or what what their dream narrative is. And so for these individuals, obviously, they do have some control over what's happening at night. This really reflects is something that we've learned over the last decade or two in that actually different parts of the brain can be in different stages of sleep or wake at the same time. And that actually sleep doesn't necessarily affect the whole of the brain the whole of the time. So, for example, in lucid dreamers, we think that there are probably some changes in brain activity in parts of the brain that are responsible for consciousness or awareness so that they are a little bit more awake than the rest of the brain but that's the case for example in sleepwalking too we know that the in sleepwalking there are some parts of the brain that are responsible for rational thinking or for memory that remain in very deep sleep but other parts of the brain like for example those parts that are responsible for emotion or for movement or for vision actually are are in full wakefulness concept that our whole brain remains in one state at any one time is incorrect. So you could train yourself to dream in a way that you can control your dreams. You could get to that level somehow. So can you, the question is, can you learn to lucid dream? I guess the answer to that is yes. There are people who uh, will provide people with techniques that increase the likelihood that they're going to be able to lucid dream. There are some technologies even out there that are being used on an experimental basis that seem to generate electrical changes in particular parts of the brain that can increase the lucidity of dreaming. So this is something that some individuals seem to be able to train themselves to be able to do. Interesting, because wouldn't you be more productive and also if you can direct your dreams and where it's going, then you're less likely to have negative experiences? You've hit the nail on the head. I mean, this is a fascinating area of neuroscience at the moment because, for example, if you uh, have terrible nightmares, say, for example, you have post-traumatic stress disorder, you're a veteran, and you have recurrent nightmares related to your experiences in combat, if you have a degree of, of control or the ability to regulate your dreams, uh, then that's a very powerful tool for actually getting rid of those dreams. If you can change the ending of the nightmare that you're having on a, a regular basis, then you may well be able to rid yourself of, of the problem that has been plaguing you. 
uh, also, if, for example, and we're correct in our view that one of the functions of dreaming is about learning, particularly learning motor behaviors, then, you know, could you control your dreams so that you're practicing the piano every night? And could you be a, a, an absolute maestro after a year of dreaming every night that you're playing the piano? I wonder if it would leave you exhausted, would it not? You have to have a certain level of focus at that point while you're sleeping. There are many things that we do not fully understand about sleep. Certainly, people who lucid dream on a regular basis do not seem to report uh, feeling more exhausted than anybody else. They're still getting REM sleep. They're still getting dreaming sleep. Uh, and they're still getting the same proportion, the same depth of very deep sleep, of non-REM sleep. So it may be that it ha actually has no impact whatsoever. I love to be able to do that. It would make for a very exciting night time. Yes, I would get so much more done. <laughs> <laughs> Wrapping up with all the negative news, extra stressors during this pandemic. What are your recommendations for creating a good night's sleep? I think certainly, you know, anybody who is suffering from poorer quality sleep, from more vivid dreams, uh, for example, would not be alone uh, in the current time. We know that the, the COVID-19 pandemic has had a very wide-reaching um, impact on uh, people's sleep throughout the world. I think the key thing to remember is that this is a you know, not something that we are hopefully going to be living with for five years or a decade. It is it is a period in time which will pass and our sleep will hopefully return to normal. But I think the key thing is, is to ensure that you are giving yourself adequate opportunity uh, to be in bed. If you are feeling particularly anxious, there are a whole range of tools out there that people can access for themselves to try and lower their anxiety levels and i think that that's of absolute crucial importance uh, when it comes to actually maximizing the, the or optimizing the quality of sleep and and to think about tools like online resources that enable you to improve the behavior surrounding sleep and and to give you some uh, insights into how to improve sleep further that's really good to know that it's easily accessible and we just have to look for them. Exactly. Thank you for sharing your expertise and joining me on Spark today. Great. Thanks for having me, Kelly.